Foundations series this morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 once again. Uh, Genesis 1, we'll read verses 26 to 29 together this morning. Uh, That's a text upon which our message will be based. And so as we read that together, if you don't have a copy in front of you, you can find it on the screen behind me and follow along there. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through verse 29. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and and every tree, sorry, with seed is in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is God's word. Last week, we took a look at this passage and considered together what it means to be created in the image of God. And we said last week that the image of God isn't, the, is, isn't found in our physical bodies. It isn't necessarily found in our rational capacities. But the image of God is found in the fact that we were created to be glory reflectors. We have a unique capacity to reflect God's glory back to Him that no other part of animate or inanimate creation possesses. That it's a unique property that God made humanity with. And we said last week that 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 capacity expresses itself in a variety of ways in our lives. And historically, theologians have argued that our capacity to reflect God's glory expresses itself in three areas, right? At least these three areas. In our relationships, in our, right, our capacity to live as righteous beings, in our righteousness, and then the dominion that we have over the earth in our rule. And so uh, this week and the next two weeks, we want to take a look at those avenues of expression that the image of God, that capacity we have to reflect God's glory, how does it show itself in our lives? How does it express itself in our everyday realities? These things are not the image of God, but they are avenues for the expression of the image of God, ways that it expresses itself in our lives. And we want to begin this morning by taking a look at the first expression that I listed earlier, which is in our relationships. In our relationships. And I think one of the things we see and, and, and can imply from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 is this, is that we are relational beings. As human beings, we are relational beings, and we are relational beings because we are created in the image of a relational God. Look, in verse 26, we read these words, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I had somebody pull me aside last week after the table, and they said, Hey, explain to me what's going on in in verse 26 when you see the words us and our in God referring to making man in His image. 
And I said, well, there's, historically, there's two schools of thought with regards to what's going on there in the plurals that show up in verse 26. There's one school of thought that says, hey, listen, what's going on here is God is taking counsel with a heavenly court of perhaps angelic beings as he forms humankind. The other school of thought is the one that I subscribe to, that God is taking counsel with himself with himself in Genesis 1.26. Because God, it appears in 1.26 that God's taking counsel with someone. Yet the rest of the scripture makes it plain that God doesn't take counsel with anyone when he created, nor will he share the credit with anyone for what he has created. Right? So, for instance, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, he says, Isaiah says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Can you imagine God? In the hollow of his hand, cupping his hands together and measuring all the waters of the earth. Or marked off the heavens with a span. A span was like the, hand, the, the measure of a hand. And he puts his hand out to the heavens and he marks things off by the measurement of his own hand. Or enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, Isaiah is talking about this great, magnificent, majestic God saying, Whom did he seek counsel with? Whom did he hire as a consultant to help him understand how to lay the foundations of justice and knowledge and understanding in the world? And the implied answer to each of those rhetorical questions is no one. No one. Then in Isaiah 42 verse 8, God declares, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, my praise, nor my praise to carved idols. Essentially what God says in Isaiah 42 is that He doesn't give His glory to idols, and I would say nor does He give it to angels. So He doesn't, take credit, he doesn't give credit for what He has done to hollow carved images, nor angelic beings that He formed and created as well. Right? He didn't hire a consultant to guide him through the process of creation. So when we read us and our in verse 26, I believe what we're witnessing is God taking counsel with himself. Now this can only make sense right, if there is a plurality within God. And it would seem the rest of the Bible makes that clear. Let me give you several examples. First, Genesis chapter 1, I think, makes it clear in verse 2, whenever we read these words, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So already you see some sort of plurality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Right. So here you have God creating, the Spirit hovering. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and writing about Jesus, John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the Spirit's hovering over the waters, God's creating, and you have Jesus in John 1 as the agent through whom everything comes into existence. Hebrews chapter 1. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Jesus, again, as the agent through which creation comes. Colossians chapter 1. There's a theme here, all these first chapters of these books. Verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus again, the agent of creation. And then in Mark chapter 1, you see Jesus as the one being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And the voice of one speaks and bellows from the heaven, This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And no one relates to someone as a son unless they are indeed their father. And so the Father speaking, the Spirit descending, the Son being baptized. There is a plurality in God Himself that shows up across the pages of the Scriptures. So when we read us and our in Genesis 1.26, I believe what we're seeing is an intra-Trinitarian dialogue. The Father, the Son, and Spirit taking counsel together as they create mankind. Let us make God, God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now one of the things that this shows us is that God is relational before humanity ever comes upon the scene. God is relational in His very nature. See, the doctrine of the Trinity, what it does is it collects evidence from across the pages of Scripture and it pieces it together to, to present a picture of a God who is three co-equal and co-eternal persons who share one singular divine essence. In other words, what makes God God, His character, His nature, His power, His majesty, the essence of who God is, is shared by these three persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They are self-existent, they are equal, they are distinct, and they are one. They submit to one another. They serve one another, they love one another, they delight in one another, and they exalt one another. This is God before humanity ever comes upon the scene. For all of eternity past, here He is relating to Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, fully delighting in the other persons, each one. So to be made in the image of God as a glory reflector, then, we too are relational beings. And one way that image is expressed in our lives is in our capacity to develop relational connections. And I would say that's twofold. First, to have a relationship with our Creator. A relationship with God Himself. See, man was unique among all the creatures that God made as Adam was created for covenant with God. He was created for covenant relationship with God. One theologian, Michael Horton, says it this way. He says, to be an image bearer is to be the sort of creature who can know, serve, and self-consciously worship the Creator. Right? No other 
No other form of life that God makes has that unique mark upon it. Which is why in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we don't see God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, communing with the beasts of the field. Or walking through the garden in the cool of the day and communing with the birds of the air. Right? Or going diving and communing with the fish of the seas. Right? He walks through the garden and he communes with the man and the woman, male and female, the ones made in his likeness after his image. You know, it's been said that there's a void or a vacuum in every human heart that can only be filled by a deep, abiding, intimate, personal relationship with God. Because we were created for that. As glory reflectors to live in relationship with the one who's made us. But second of all, our capacity to have relationships with our fellow image bearers. Listen, this is, this is something, you talk about a world, we talk, we've talked about a worldview over the last several weeks, right? How do we explain societies? How do we explain cultures that have developed over the course of human history? Is it just by geography? Is it just by economics? I would say no, that there is an innate desire that's implanted within every human being to have deep relational connections to others who are like them. That's why God says in Genesis 2, it was not good for a man to be alone, but I shall make a suitable helper for him. There was one who is like him now. It wasn't good for him to be alone. We all long for a sense of connection to other human beings. and We call that community. Right? We long for the fabric of our lives to be woven together with other image bearers. And that longing for community, church, is a longing for family for many of us. It's a longing for family. No matter how good the family you had biologically that you came out of or how bad it was for you within your home and your upbringing, each of us has a longing for family, intimate and personal relationships. In fact, our humanity begins to unravel without them. Right? You, you, you put someone in isolation from other people for weeks, months, years, or decades. And all of a sudden, their humanity begins to come apart. They don't know how to function. We, have, we were made for those types of relationships. And I think you see evidence of that in the fact that our deepest joys, our greatest and highest pleasures in life are found in persons, not in things. In persons. Right? You see, you see that in the eyes of a new parent or a new grandparent. Okay? Whenever they behold that little life that they're holding in their arms. I had the opportunity to go and see uh, uh, the, the Ravels, Seth and Emily, the Coopers, uh, 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 Craig and Tammy Cooper's daughter and son-in-law and their baby in the hospital this week as it was born. And as I was leaving, Seth said, hey, you want me to get a picture? I said, yes, get a picture. So I send it to me so I can send it to my wife and make her jealous. Because I'm there holding the little baby, right, in the hospital. Okay, all swaddled up. Right? But whenever you look into the eyes of new parents, 
or you look into the eyes of new grandparents for the first time, you see this joy that is overwhelming and overflowing at times with tears. I remember holding my first child for the first time and just, I had not been an emotional person until I had children, right? But once I had children, it was like the waterworks just began to flow. Why? Because our deepest joys are in persons, not in things. You can try, right, to fill all the, you you can try to find your deepest satisfaction in all kinds of things, but where you will find it is going to be in relationships, in persons. You see it in the eyes of newlyweds, those who are like stark, right, just gazing into each other's eyes as I've done, I've done weddings before and I've I've done a lot of weddings in my pastoral ministry. And you see those, that young couple staring at each other as they exchange vows, right? And they're all smiley and happy and they can't imagine anything ever being difficult in life, right? Anything ever being difficult in their relationship, right? Because they are infatuated with one another. They love one another because it's another person, one who is like them. You see it in the eyes also of couples who have endured the highs and lows of 50 years, of marriage. Our deepest joys and highest pleasures are not in things, church, but they are in persons. In fact, so much so that we write and celebrate and sing songs about it, don't we? Right? Back in 1971, Loggins and Messina wrote this song called, uh, recorded this song, Danny's Song. And it's, some of you know it, right? It's a really catchy, kind of folksy tune that goes along with it. And it celebrates this very truth. And listen to what it says. It says, and even though we ain't got money, I'm still in love with you, honey. Yeah, you guys know it, right? And everything will bring a chain of love. Oh, 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 Right? I'm not going to sing it for you. You don't want that. That's the best I can give you. In the morning when I rise, you bring a tear of joy to my eyes and tell me everything's going to be all right. See, we celebrate that kind of deep connection with another person because it's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. We are relational beings made in the image of a relational God to reflect His glory through our relationship to Him and to those around us, to others. Now, while it is true that indeed our deepest joys are in persons and not in things, there is another side to that coin. Okay? What it also means... Is that while our highest and deepest joys are in persons, not things, it holds true that our deepest heartaches and pains come from the hands and hearts of other people as well. Listen, it's very hard to talk about pre-fall realities in a post-fall world. Okay? Without processing it through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to dive deep into Genesis chapter 3 in a few weeks, but we have to frame up how it is that we reflect God's glory in the world that we live in today, not the one that was prior to Genesis chapter 3. So bear with me for a moment, because what sin has done is it has fractured relationships. It has fractured our capacity for healthy relationships. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a broken mirror in your home, ever dropped a mirror. I tried to cut mirror one time. I don't know if I'll do it again. Uh, it, it was not as easy as YouTube made it out to be for me, right? Um, but if you've ever seen a broken mirror while it's still framed up, if you're moving and you drop the mirror and it breaks, but it still adheres to the frame that it was, it was mounted in, right? It's got all these cracks running through the mirror. That mirror will still produce a reflection, but it's a broken reflection. It's a fractured image because you see pieces, little pieces everywhere of the image that it's attempting to reflect. And sin has done exactly that to our relational capacities and to our relationships. It's broken them. It's fractured them. See, relationships are a mark of what it means to be a human made in God's image. And yet they can turn toxic and destructive. When sin blinds us to the worth and dignity of all people who are made in the image of God. And so it it reflects this broken image. Sin causes us to turn in on ourselves. And rather than reflecting God's glory, we said last week, we make our aim in life to have others revolve around us so that we can project our own glory. Right? We're not being glory reflectors, but glory projectors. That's the essence of sin. That life is about me. Everything revolves around me. I am the sun. Everything orbits around me. It's the essence of sin. And sin inevitably fractures our relationships because one of the way it expresses itself is we want everything and everyone in our lives then to revolve around us. In his essay, The inner ring, C.S. Lewis speaks of this mentality. He calls it the inner ring mentality. And when he writes about the inner ring, he's talking about the desire of the human heart. What our hearts long for, what our hearts ache for, what our hearts are on a quest to achieve. And listen to how he describes it. He says, it is not large lighted rooms or champagne or even scandals about peers and cabinet ministers that our hearts want. It is the little sacred attic or studio, the heads bent together, the fog of smoke around us, and the delicious knowledge that we, we four or five, all huddled beside this stove are the people who know. We want to be in the inner ring, the inner circle, and have everything and everyone revolve around us. To get inside positions of privilege or power or prestige, right? In high school, it looks like to be in the popular crowd, okay? The, 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 the kids who are being invited to all the places and all the parties. In our adult, like you think, well, I, I, I'm, I'm done with that, right? As adults, it looks like being the in the no crowd on the block or at church, right? Or in our workspaces to be the people who are brought into the boardroom to make the important decisions about the future of the company that you work for. Though we all want to be in that inner ring. We all have a desire for that. We all have a longing for it. And then once you get in there, Lewis says, once you're there, In the inner ring, he says, other people have to come to you, revolve around you. Once you get on the inside, other people, their orbit is around you. And this is the essence of the outworking of sin and relationships in every life and in every culture. Right? The inner ring mindset of everything and everyone revolving around me. Everyone coming to me, deferring to me. 
is the, is, 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 is the seedbed of all sorts of destruction. It's a seedbed for war and for colonization and for genocide and slavery and Jim Crow and the Trail of Tears, the legalization of abortion, the segregation of races and classes, and on and on and on. Because when the relational capacity of human beings gets fractured, it devolves into this inner ring of human life and interactions that are broken. Not the way that God designed. And listen, you can recognize that if every planet in our solar system today said, I don't want to be a planet. I want to be the sun. Right? And, and, and Pluto, is, I don't know, is Pluto still a planet? I don't think it's a planet. It's something out there. Right? But if the furthest foreign body in our solar system said, I want to move to the very center and become the sun. And even the sun's going to revolve around me. Right? What's going to happen to our solar system is it's going to disintegrate. It'll disintegrate. And that's what happens every time an individual or a group of individuals say, we want to be at the center and have everyone revolve around us, is that human life and relationships begin to break down and they begin to disintegrate. Because sin inevitably fractures relationships. We're still relational beings. But there's all sorts of of fault lines running through those relationships on account of living in a fallen world. And listen church, what sin has fractured only God and Christ is able. And he's able to do that as we grow in reflecting the image and likeness of Christ. The image of likeness of Christ. And so if you're sitting there asking yourself the question, how is it that I reflect God's glory through my relationships? How do I express the image of God relationally in my life? I would say it this way, that we reflect the glory of God through self-giving love. Through self-giving love. See, sin says it's a self-taking absorption. It creates a black hole effect in which everything gets swallowed inside and disintegrates. But as we grow and to reflect the image of God, particularly the image of Christ, what happens is we, we, that we, we, we move, we're not falling in on ourselves any longer, but we're moving towards others in self-giving love in the same way that God has done towards us. We reflect God's glory when we treat others made in God's image with the same dignity, the same worth, the same value, and the same respect that God does. Because His image is present in every person that has ever walked the face of the planet. It's every person of every political persuasion. It's present in every class, ethnicity, and race. It's present in those who are struggling with physical disabilities. And it's present in those who are wrestling with mental health. It's present in heterosexuals, homosexuals, and those confused about their sexuality. The image of God is there. It may be a distorted and fractured and broken reflection, but it's still a reflection It's present in every person from every tribe, nation, and tongue. In every person present in every Asian and every Hispanic, every person of African descent, every Pacific Islander, every Arab, and every Anglo. It's present in people who adhere to different religious faiths. Now listen, not every religion worships the same God, but every worshiper of a different God is still made in the image of the true God. 
So it's present in a Muslim, Muslim woman wearing a hijab, a Jewish man wearing a yarmulke, and even a good old Texas Baptist boy wearing a cowboy's hat or a cowboy hat, either one. And we reflect God's glory when we treat others made in God's image with the same dignity, worth, value, and respect that God does. So instead of forcing others then to revolve around us, we revolve around God. And as we revolve around God, we come to reflect His own self-giving love. Right? Let me, let me take a theological... It's not a rabbit trail, okay? You may call it, maybe it's a squirrel trail. I don't know. But let me, let me try to drop a little theology here in the midst of, of this, this, this idea. Theologians have held for quite some time throughout the history of the church, and numbers of them, not exclusively, but many, have held that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, is, is the deep, dynamic rich and intimate love that the Father has always had for the Son and the Son has always had for the Father that is so robust that it stands out as the third person of the triune God, binding them together in perfect harmony in which they're submitting, serving, rejoicing, and exalting one another. Constantly for all of eternity. And listen, when we revolve, our lives grow to revolve around God rather than making everything and everyone revolve around us. We're revolving around God. He is the sun. sun. We are merely a planet. We grow to reflect the very love that God has for Himself in our lives and our interactions with others. So we're renewed into the image of our Creator. Now, let me show you uh, hope from a biblical text where I believe this gets pressed into the very practical realities of your life. Colossians chapter 3. In fact, if you read the the New Testament epistles, you're going to notice that the first half of them, most of them, if not all of them, is all about God and what He's done to save and reconcile and sanctify us through the sending of His Son, His redemptive work in our lives. The second half of them then is, so what? Right? Okay, what do we do now? How do we live as those who have been saved and reconciled and redeemed? And in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has turned the corner and I want you to read what he, I want you to hear what he says. In verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in other words, here in this community in which you who are now walking, putting on the new self, being renewed in the knowledge, uh, in the knowledge of the image of your creator, in this place, here, verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, there is not Greek, 
and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, I want you to notice just how much of what comes to Paul's mind when he thinks about being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator has to do with our relationships to others. Just how much of that? In verse 11, he says, In a place and in a people that are being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, they're becoming clearer reflections of the glory of God in their relationships. He says, In that people, we set aside all earthly and worldly distinctions. There's not Jew, there's not Greek, there's not slave, there's not free, there's not barbarian, there's not Scythian, but Christ is all and in all in that place. So it means that we don't treat people on the basis of their worldly distinctions. Right? So as James would say later in the epistles in the New Testament, we show partiality to no one on the basis of their their, 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 their outward, presentable selves. Because Christ is all and in all. So there's no set-aside worldly distinctions. Second, he says, we put away, right? We take off anger. Where does anger express itself most frequently? In the context of what? relationships, in the context of marriages, in the context of parenting. Y'all know I'm right. In the context of friendships, in the context of fill in the blank, where does malice, a malicious intent express itself in the context of relationships with other people. We sl- when we slander, what are we talking about? Other people, relationships. When we lie, oftentimes, who are we lying to? You say, myself. Yes, you are. But also to other people. How, see how much of what we are to put on off obscenities right we are not to as James would say as well bless God and curse those made in his likeness see how much of what we're to put off and put away has to do with relational connections capacities that we're to put these things away and then he says put on in verses 12 to 15 right being renewed in knowledge, after the image of our Creator, 
involves you stop doing these things erupting in anger and taking out your wrath on other people, being deceitful and lying about yourself to others or slandering other people, acting with malicious intent towards them. And then put on, he says, compassionate hearts. Hearts that move towards others who are in need. Not expecting them to revolve around you, but because you're revolving around God, you move towards them in their need. Kindness. Kindness. Humility. Where, does, where, does, where do kindness and humility express themselves, church? In relationships. Do you see a theme? Oftentimes we think humility is that I look in the mirror, I don't think very highly of myself, but true humility really is this. Not that I think less of myself, but I think of myself less. And I'm thinking of others more in the context of relationships, meekness, patience. Who do you have to be patient with? Other people. Who do other people have to be patient with? You. Me. Bearing with one another. That's not talking about right, shouldering burdens with other people. It's talking about shouldering other people who are burdens to you at times. Bearing with them. At times in their foolishness. At times in their lack of thoughtfulness. Forgiving each other. Whenever words have been spoken. Whenever looks have been cast, forgiving others, letting peace rule in our hearts to which we were called in one body. What does it look like to live peacefully together in one body other than there being harmonious what? Relationships. And he says, above all these things, put on what? Love, which binds them together in perfect Harmony and the same. Listen, the reason I bring up this whole idea of the Holy Spirit being the love of God that is so rich and dynamic and robust that it stands forth as the third person of the triune God in which they're rejoicing in one another for all of eternity. Why then does Paul say, above everything else, put on love? Put on love. Which does what? Binds us together in perfect harmony so that you're able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Not be jealous of those who are rejoicing because of something that they've received that you have not, but rejoice with them because you love them and out of love, as you're revolving around God, you're beginning to reflect His self-giving love. Giving yourself away more and more and more in the context of relationships. That's how we reflect the glory of God in the context of our relational capacities. Put off, put on, be renewed in the image or acknowledged in the image of your Creator. And as He does, you're reflecting more and more of His character in the way that you engage with other people. Let me say one final thing before we close. This love that we are to reflect, listen, 
You cannot reflect something you have not received. You cannot, which is why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, before he ever gets to any of this, when he bridges the, the, the gap from this is what God has done, this is now what you should do, he says this, if then, as a conditional statement, right? In other words, if this is true about you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, put off these things, put on these things in the way that you engage in relationships in your life. But that's a big if then. Because you cannot reflect, you cannot give away something that you have not received. And the way that we receive the love of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Who himself was given so that the fracturing that sin has produced and not glory reflectors that the penalty of our sins could be dealt with so that we be freed from the power of sin as it holds sway over our lives and one day be fully and finally free from even the presence of sin whenever Christ returns. Unless you or until you receive Him in faith, there is no way for that broken mirror to be put back together. There's no way. So if that's you this morning and you've yet to place your confidence in Christ, I invite you to do that today. To call on Him in faith. Acknowledge that indeed you have tried to make everything and everyone revolve around you, including God Himself. As we said last week, as we quoted one pastor, that our desire of our hearts, right, post the fall, is not to reflect His face, but to take His place. Right, that, that's been my desire. Acknowledge that before God, asking Him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to place your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And then, if then, you've been raised with Christ, no longer living that way, then you begin to walk in this new kind of life, being renewed in knowledge after the image of your Creator. And that mirror slowly begins to be put back together to become a truer reflection of God in your relationships. That's our only hope, church. Because you can't reflect what you haven't received. So would you join me in prayer this morning as we pray that God would make us the kind of covenant people and the kind of covenant community that reflect the us and our of Genesis 1.26 in our relationships with God and with others. Let's pray together. Father, today I pray that indeed you would make us a people of compassionate hearts. I pray that we would move towards the needs of others in the reflection of your own self-giving love. That we would be kind and humble and meek and patient and bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Having peace rule in our hearts and love binding us together in perfect harmony recognizing your image in all peoples 
and reflecting back to you your glory in the way that we love. Father, I know even in a room this size, there are all sorts of fractured relationships on account of sin. And I ask, whether it be relationships between members of this church, or it be relationships between family members, or it be relationships in workplaces, or in neighborhoods, or in, f- in families with siblings or parents. Father, I pray that you help us to put off anger and to put off malice and to put off slander and to put off lies and to put off obscenities. To no longer see people through the lens of worldly distinctions and to clothe ourselves with those virtues that flow from your character. As our lives revolve around you, those who have been raised with Christ, their lives will revolve around you. So that indeed we would reflect the even the very nature of who you are as a relational God healthy, whole, and healed relationships in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.